Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Kareem Kubchandani of Tufts University. Uh, Kareem, I've been looking at the news. I've been looking at the forecasts. Uh, it looks like you may be about to be buried under tons of snow. Maybe not. You've been at Tufts for a while now. What is your sort of go-to set of nor'easter preparations? Are you, are you getting ready for big snow? What are you doing? I am going to Trader Joe's right after this to stock <laughs> up. Um, and I'm going to do a lot of work at home and then have lots of ready meals uh, prepped to, to go. Yeah. But I'm nice, not going anywhere. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Being in St. Louis now where we rarely get giant snow like that, I'm like, oh, that... I used to enjoy being in Providence and getting like housebound and having to dig out my car. And then on the other hand, I'm like, it's also nice not to have to worry about, you know, three feet of snow yeah, <laughs> completely can tell tapping it's you in your house. It's clearly pending. Like the skies are gloomy. It's coming. And you know, sometimes these things just blow over and like it's nothing. But I think I think it's going to be devastating. I'm not well, excited. I hope. I hope it's not devastating. And, and as we're recording, um, I wouldn't be, you know, uh, annoyed if you were drawing up a shopping list a little bit on the side okay. so that you make your most, <laughs> make the most of your Trader Joe's visit. I'll take the permission. <laughs> I, um, I always get uh, the pastry pups. Nice, nice. Hopefully people, hopefully there's some left left for you when you get there. Um, I'm joined also by Miriam Felton-Dansky of Bard College. Um, Miriam, you look to be somewhat less in the zone of imminent uh, snowfall, but I'm curious to know how things are going at Bard. Have you, have classes started yet? Have you been doing sort of what we're doing at WashU, which is like two weeks of remote teaching before we get into the classroom? What's the outlook for classes there? Um, we have not started classes. Uh, we start on Monday. Bard always has a very late start because there's a um, three-week science intensive for first years. So they all have like a little tiny break and then they come back and they do like three weeks of intensive. It's called citizen science and it's about engaging with science and communities. Um, and then all the other students come back. So we start super late. We go super late in into May. Um, and I would say Bard is doing a soft launch um, rather than something that's more like an official two weeks of um Remote classes, we have a testing protocol for students who are returning to campus. And um, I've been so amazed by the job that Bard's COVID response team, um, led by a biology professor, among others, um, has done keeping people safe. So um, students are expected to come to in-person classes when they have cleared the, uh, I believe it's two um, negative tests. Um, so we'll see. I have a I have a full plan for Monday morning with my in-person class that can only be done in the room. So uh, I'm just assuming that that's going to happen and who knows. Well, good luck. I, I feel like two years into this, almost two years into this, many of us are just sort of used to having to adapt and um, to foreshadow one of our topics uh, for the day, um, being used to a little bit of mess, right? Like it's teaching now is just not, the, it does not go on rails. It is not as easy to control or predict as it used to be. So um, I hope that classes go well for you um, starting Monday and beyond. Um, 
On this episode, listeners, we are going to discuss Vivian L. Huang's article, Sparking Joy, Serving Mess, The Drag of Asian American History, published in 2020 in the Journal of Popular Culture. Um, We're also going to take a look at the way that the pandemic has disrupted, continues to disrupt uh, theater festivals in New York, such as Under the Radar. Um, Festivals like this normally run around the same time as the Association of Performing Arts Professionals. Um, What happens, we will ask, when theater artists and presenting organizations aren't able to congregate two years running. Um, Finally, we have all sampled some of the uh, recent theatrical streaming offerings that have been available during this long winter. We'll talk about a few of those and see if we can detect any trends in the ways artists and theaters are using uh, streaming platforms to reach audiences. Before we dive into those topics, I would like to to give a land acknowledgement. Um, I'm recording in my office at WashU in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Missouri tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Uh, Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat by the United States Army. So I would like to acknowledge this history and uh, also thank the the Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. First up, Sparking Joy, Serving Mess, The Drag of Asian American History by Vivian Il Huang. Uh, the, The point of departure of this fascinating article is Marie Kondo's gendered and racialized performance in her Netflix shows where she helps people deal with their clutter. But as Huang demonstrates, there's much more going on um, in terms of the historical background of Asian American histories and representations. Um, uh, Kareem, I wonder if you would do us the the service of sort of teeing this up. Um, there's a lot of going on. There's a lot going on in this in this article. But what's the sort of major, um, you know, the the case the cases that are being read? Um, what's the the sort of central intervention or argument here? Yeah, um, I'm really excited that we're talking about this because the essay just received the 2021 Crompton, Crompton Knoll Prize for the Best Essay in LGBTQ Studies from the MLK, the MLA GLQ Caucus and uh, American Studies Queer and Trans Caucus. And, and it's by Vivian Huang, who's a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College, a performance studies scholar. Um, and it was published uh, in the Journal of Popular Culture in 2020. And, and the essay is a, is a close reading of performance artist Titi Takamoto's Drag King interpretation um, in a video called Looking for Jiro of Jiro Onuma, who's a Japanese-American man who worked in mess halls while he was imprisoned in the Topaz camp in central Utah during World War II, the World War II internment of Japanese-Americans. Um, and so this 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 uh, mess of the mess hall um, is set up against the the Netflix show tidying up with Marie Kondo and the project of cleaning up cleaning up mess and cleaning up the home, but also cleaning up the historical archive. Um, and and so the essay opens with this moment in which a Japanese American couple, this kind of all American, they they perform this all Americanness, um, shows shows Marie Kondo an internment scrapbook that uh, one of their fathers had kept, and Kondo says, "Don't throw it away," right? And in in this ritualistic way that um, she's known for, she she says this, "Keep this," right? Um, and and uh, by by reading. Takamoto's reinterpretation of um, another internment 
another piece of the internment archive, which is uh, Jiro Onuma's uh, um, uh, images, and then images that he kept of these muscular white men and physique magazines. Um, and and as uh, a, a Takamoto sort of has these archives playing in the background of the video, while also uh, kneading dough and even fisting dough, um, and and using the dough as uh, muscles to to create those muscle men who are who are in the background, um, it messes up the the kind of clean story we want to tell about heteronormativity in the camps, um, or and and even the heteronormativity that was uh, being imposed on uh, folks who who were interned. Uh, I think this is this is a great study this to think about theater and performance and the way it reanimates archives, um, and and it gives us tools to think with the actual aesthetics of doing that kind of archival reperformance. So on the one hand, you've got the cuteness of Marie Kondo, um, that, and on the other hand, you have Takamoto's camp, and I think that. Um, these two, uh, Huang shows that these two are doing a lot for each other. I think it's also a really teachable essay um, in the clarity of the writing, but that it speaks across performance studies, food studies, and the the kneading and fisting of dough, sports studies, and the kind of physique ma magazines and um, attention to, to muscle. And then, of course, gender and sexuality studies as it speaks to masculinity, race, performance. Um, so I just, I, I'm really excited that this essay was acknowledged for for the the interventions it makes in multiple fields um, by by two different um, uh, uh conferences and and bodies and yeah and i'm wondering what you think and maybe miriam can we start with you yeah absolutely um i i loved reading this essay thank you so much for bringing it to our attention um there's so much to talk about um but I, a few things that i was struck by one is um just the the layering of multiple kinds of archival sources, almost none of them in any sort of official archive um, that exists across both um, the the way that Marie Kondo encounters this um, this stamp book in the um, garage of these um, this couple um, that's on her show, and then of course in the many multiple kinds of archives that one encounters um, in the Takamoto piece, um, and that um, Onuma was an archivist um, in fact as well and collected all of these um, queer and um, and uh, and bodybuilder magazines and all kinds of things that were in a form of domestic archive, um, and so thinking about both the archival spaces outside of um, any sort of archive that one would um, typically have access to as a scholar or that would be made accessible to the public or that would be valued enough to be made accessible in those ways. Um, the, the stamp book in the garage also strikes me in that way. It's a, it's a kind of domestic archive um, that wouldn't be really usually thought about in those terms. Um, and I was, I was really struck by the placement of that book in the garage. Um, and, uh, and, um, Huang talks about, um, messes often being consigned to the dustbin of history. Um, but it's also sort of interested in thinking about the, the gendering of the garage of history, um, because the garage is this kind of liminal space in a house where it's, it's not exactly part of your house. It's not exactly outside. It's typically gendered as a masculine space, um, or, you know, heter heteronormatively masculine space where, um, 
the guy can, you know, saw things and paint things and I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but that the garage can be a little bit messy in a way that the interior of a house is feminized and not allowed to be messy. Um, and so I was interested that that messy history was uncovered in the garage. Um, and I was, I was curious if the garage also offers this kind of pathway in between the, the neat and the messy, um, spaces. Uh, and, um, and then also the the element of chance in both of these encounters that I understand that Takamoto found Onuma through this kind of chance archival pairing um, through um, through an archival project, and that Kondo uncovers the the scrapbook with uh, with this couple almost again by chance. And so, what role does chance play, and how is chance messy in an archive? Um, and then I guess the the, the last thing um, I wanted to think about a little bit is um, the way that. Kondo brings mess to light too. And one of the things I really appreciated about this article was that um, it was, um, Huang was really clear not to suggest that these two things exist in some kind of binary opposition to one another, but rather that they talk to one another. Um, and that part of the pleasure of watching the Netflix show, um, which I have done, is that it starts with a huge mess. And it, as theater people, we're always taught, you know, not to read um, the, the end of the play into the beginning, that that mess is important too, and the show wouldn't exist without the mess. And so um, that she she is in a certain way centering mess, even though there's this um, teleological move towards tidiness. So uh, just a few thoughts that were striking to me, but um, yeah, I love this article. It's, it's funny, you, you talked about the garage and I, I just saw this meme about like immigrant homes know that uh, the, 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 um, the real cooking doesn't happen in the kitchen, it happens in the garage. And then the, it's, <laughs> it was a TikTok and then it like, you know, it, it's going, the camera's going through the kitchen and opens and it's the person's mom or someone who's who's like set up a different kind of kitchen mm -hmm. in in uh that where like smoke and again mm -hmm. mess can happen yeah. right um where you're supposed to keep the the house clean and pristine the the um the, the garage is this like again liminal space where i think mess and multiplicity can happen um panel what are your thoughts about the essay yeah, uh, it's there's so so many, um, and this is great because I feel like it, the essay offers so many different ways into these uh, very particular interpretations. And, and listening to you speak about garage spaces as being liminal masculinity, um, I, I don't want to steer this towards my own experience. It's not for, foremost about my own experience, but it, in a certain way, it is about a kind of normative American nuclear family <clears throat> dealing with intergenerational challenges. That's one of the sort of texts of the, the condo show that, that Huang picks up on. Um, and indeed, even in my non-immigrant family, <laughs> my mom's garage, there's a deep freeze and a lot of food and a lot of mess that we're always trying to tackle. Um, and I'm just it made aware um, uh, by the discussion of the garage of how much time I've been spending in my garage doing my own <laughs> masculine performance of making, you know, archery bows and doing woodworking and like working out and how like my own sort of personal masculinity performance tends to happen in the garage. And why is that? But that's not what <laughs> I want to focus on in this discussion, um, though it it, it, it's, it helps gets it it's help it helps get it. I think why this article is so evocative. Um, I think I you know one of the things I focused on um, on in the article is how this works as a sort of I don't know like a like an example of cultural studies and performance studies scholarship and what the in a way it's a question of like interpretation and method. 
Huang takes uh, Huang takes these very um, you know particular cultural objects. Um, they're quite different in terms of form, in terms of um, uh, you know what the intended audience is, what the presumptions are that, that viewers might be expected to bring to them, and then uses these the development of these concepts, especially mess and cuteness um, and drag. Though drag is one that I had a less of a fix on by the end of the article than the other two to sort of weave them together. So it's this kind of exemplary act of interpretation and exegesis, which I think is the way that a lot of performance studies scholarship works and, and a lot of the value it brings to it. Um, but one of the sort of questions it left me with at the end was, to what extent is this giving us interpretive moves and concepts that are more broadly applicable to, um, I don't know, uh, racialized gender uh, representation, sexuality in the unique domain of Asian American um, culture and experience. I, I think that one of the questions I grappled with, with with this is, how idiosyncratic is this? Marie Kondo is a sort of famous, you know, cultural figure at this point. Most people have heard of her, um, but she's doing something very particular, um, being a Japanese woman who comes and sort of teaches Americans, and in this case, Japanese Americans, how to sort of deal with their mess. Um, the the Titi uh, Takamoto performance, also a highly particular and specific object. So are these, con to what extent are these concepts helping us map out other networks of meaning, other ways of interpreting um, Japanese American culture, or as the title of the article suggests, Asian American history. Um, I, I found myself wondering how idiosyncratic are these objects? How idiosyncratic is Huang's interpretation of them? Um, and in a way, there was a sort of limited engagement, I thought, with broader um, uh, trends or, or patterns in the ways that um, uh, these objects are, are represented. So I struggled to find a way to think of how other instances of cute, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Japanese uh, people or culture or Japanese American um, uh, culture is highly coded as cute in this way. Um, to what extent these are, you know, these are particular things to, um, things that are particular to the, the objects and the interpretive moves being situated. So I'm curious if, if either of you felt that same sort of tension. Um, you know, what is the broader thing that's being revealed here? Or are these principally just a really revelatory, highly focused examination of um, rather unique objects? I mean, I think the, the, the way that I saw these aesthetics meeting of Takamoto's camp and, and Kondo's cuteness was when Huang talks about the historicizes uh, kawaii aesthetics and um, cuteness as emerging in post-war Japan um, as, you know, as, as this um, kind of cleaning up um, and uh, of mess in itself. Um, but that both, uh, both the, the kind of U.S. archive and, or the, um, and 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 the Japanese aesthetic, right? And and this is why the I think the title of the essay is the drag of Asian slash American history, right? It's it's I think Kuang is is trying to push us to to think about Kondo's Japaneseness and um, Takamoto's and and Onuma's Asian Americanness as actually mattering to each other in the scope of U.S. empire, 
Um, and maybe that isn't fully fleshed out. Um, in some ways, I think this is actually a really clean essay. <laughs> um, it does, uh, um, the section titles are like Fist, Spark, Mess, Drag, right? There, there's a kind of um, minimalism to it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it, it doesn't, uh, and and I think that it's working inside of the aesthetic that it's it's discussing, but but it to me it's the 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 reach of U.S. empire in in producing aesthetic responses on um, either side of the Pacific that I think connect things to me, Miriam. What do you yeah, think? I, I mean for me it was um, very much that uh, in terms of the U.S. history perspective that the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was the pivot point or the kind of point of genesis for um, these two extremely aesthetically and culturally different objects that she's looking at, one very mainstream, one um, really um, uh, avant-garde or situated in a different kind of art world um, than what Marie Kondo's Netflix show is, um, but that the the covering up and the, the alighting over generations of this American war crime, um, and she even talks about the, the euphemism of internment camp versus concentration camp, um, that that lives on in our culture broadly, and then that there's this layering on of aspects asking Asians in the U.S. space and Asian Americans to perform cuteness, to perform um, various kinds of racialized affects that allow the U.S. to continue alighting that history, that, that that's something pretty historically huge that lots and lots of other works of art will connect to um, and that she's offering this this way of thinking about it through mess and tidiness and and um, and camp. So uh, so I don't know if that that answers panel but that was that was kind of the 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 huge thing that both of these specific examples um really opened up for me yeah that that makes a lot of sense there's a moment early in the essay where uh huang mentions and i'm not remembering the specific citation but that some of the commentary around condos practice which is you know take all of your surplus of objects and identify them one by one the ones that spark joy you keep the ones that don't you say thank you and you and you get rid of them, that for immigrant families or for families that have these sort of, you know, I don't know, personal archives or memorabilia of, that are emotionally fraught, that are historically loaded with um, pain and trauma, that the dichotomy between things that spark joy and things that should be thrown away doesn't work. Um, and in this way, I felt like it did, you know, the essay really really works together well because, in part because it, it focuses on this particular episode. Um, I still think, I, I do have a, uh, you know, I, I do wonder about the scope of it being Asian American versus Japanese American. It seems like so much of that argument relies on the particular history of the 20th century and, um, you know, U.S. Uh, crimes and, and mistreatment of its of its uh, Japanese and Japanese American um citizens. And so I feel like you you could have a very different argument if you were um, looking at Chinese American history, which has its own and very different fraught histories. Um, so in a way, there was a bit of, I don't know, a little bit of a fast and loose playing with the scope that, that brought up questions for me. But as I said, I feel like it's a, an exemplary way of unlocking incredibly well-informed and, and thoughtful meaning in these um, curious objects that you might not look at um, in that way. Otherwise, I mean, I think you know, there's there's a kind of play in the essay with 
uh, language in terms of like mess means the mess hall and the messiness. Do means money and it means bread. Um, but I think that that uh, and then there and then there's of course in. Um, Takamoto's performance, there's the layering of the like white muscular body um, over and then Jiro Numa and then Takamoto as well. So I think that the kind of I think one that implicates white um, white bodies in imagining what the Asian body is or wants to be or aspire is supposed to aspire to be um, or is set against. But then there's a the the layering of Asian bodies on Asian bodies as well. Um, and so you know, I mean, I I, I think that people. People discriminate on against East, East Asians regardless of whether they're Japanese or Chinese American, right? They like that that transferability and that mess, the the that mess of interpretation. I think comes to have particularly violent reper repercussions, as we've seen um, in uh, during COVID as well, and the the kind of racialization of all Asian bodies as Chinese, um, and so that that fast and loose. <laughs> Sort of interpretation, I think, is 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 it, 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 uh, it's something that I think a lot of us in Asian American studies uh, do because I think we understand the implications of one one set of histories on uh, actually a, a large number of different kinds of bodies in that way. Yeah. Uh, that's I mean that's sort of how I read that as well. Yeah, that makes it makes perfect sense. Um, well, I, I think we'd all say this is absolutely worth, um, checking out and thinking about putting into a syllabus, or even if you're just a, you know, casually interested in, um, uh, the Marie Kondo, um, um, uh, check this out. Um, we wanted to talk also today, um, about the ongoing pandemic, um, and its effects on, on theater art making, um, one significant wrinkle that has developed um, in the looming sort of third year of the pandemic um, is the pause in festivals showcasing avant-garde work. Um, these typically happen in New York at the beginning of the year and are sort of timed to coincide with the Association of Performing Arts Professionals or APAP conference, where um, if I understand correctly, that is frequently a, a, a place where um, representatives from presenting organizations can see work, new work that's available for touring gigs. Um, they can schmooze, they can meet artists, they can see what's new, they can go to Under the Radar and other such festivals. Um, so it's a really important um, uh, meeting point and, and um, uh, set of overlapping institutions that for the second year in a row now has been heavily disrupted. Um, Helen Shaw wrote a piece for Vulture that gives kind of a, an encapsulation of this situation and also a rundown of some of the uh, events that can still be seen. Um, uh, there are things that have not been canceled. There are things that are available to be seen online. Uh, Miriam has spoken to uh, some of her contacts in the New York theater world. I don't know, Miriam, can you tell us how are theater makers, from your point of view, thinking about and responding to the impediments presented by the Omicron wave? Yeah, so... Um just first to give a little bit of context, although um, people may be super familiar with these festivals, over 
roughly a 15 year period from 2004 or five until 2020, there were um, a number of festivals happening in January in New York City that gathered um, avant-garde and experimental performance, um, including theater and performance art and dance all together. And that co worked time to coincide with APAP. Um, and uh, Under the Radar was one, um, COIL, which was at the former uh, PS122, now Performance Space New York, was another um, American Realness um, hosted at Abrams Art Center, um, but curated by Ben Pryor, who was not the um, artistic director. There's a, an important distinction there um, of Abrams Art Center um, Prototype, which is a new opera festival. Um, those are, are just a few of the multiple festivals that, um, that happened over that time and that were um, a time when um, producers and presenters would come to New York and would see lots and lots of performance. And there were specific showcases set up um, typically for producers, specifically for producers and presenters in which excerpts would be shared. Um, and some of the reason um, behind these festivals was actually to create full productions so that presenters, um, rather than seeing um, 15 minutes of something in a studio, would see a full production. And, um, and uh, you know, I've listened to Ben talk about the genesis of um, American Realness many times, and it was really um, through his work with um, the choreographer and dancer Miguel Gutierrez that he started American Realness, and he started it so that um, there could be full productions of Miguel Gutierrez's work, um, full performances with um, with design and, and full length um, and such. Um, and if you were a scholar um, or critic of um, contemporary performance, you could also come and just binge on, um, you know, three shows a day for five days and um, see all kinds of things. And I used to do uh, an intensive where I would take students to see 10 shows over um, four days and um, and we would trek around the city in the cold. And um, it, I have very fond memories um, that were uh, challenged deeply um, by the conversations I had this week. So um, this year was a little different because as opposed to last year when say Under the Radar was completely online, um, this year it really did look like we were gonna have some in-person um, performances and Under the Radar was canceled. Um, some of the other festivals had some performances that were canceled, some that went online, some that were able to be um, presented in an in-person way um, in, to some extent. Um, there was, uh, there's a festival that's relatively recent, the Exponential Festival, which is um, based at the Brick in Brooklyn, which is um, a very, uh, kind of even more under the radar than under the radar um, uh, festival. Um, and they, uh, you know, gave their artists um, a choice between moving online and postponing. Um, and so there was a lot of flexibility, um, but I think there was a lot of hardship. Um, so I talked to a few people. Um, I started by um, asking Helen, who she, Helen Shaw, who wrote the roundup that we read, um, who she thought I should talk to. Um, and, and she pointed out a couple of things um, that were, I think, really important. One is that um, APAP, the the fest, the I'm sorry, the um, conference still happened. It just happened primarily online, and there were still um, programming for presenters and producers. And so, um, what one of the things that was lost really was a bigger um, public scope. And so, there was that connection with audiences um, that just wasn't there. Um, and then she also pointed out that we haven't really seen um, what January is going to look like anymore because um, just before the pandemic happened. 
um, American Realness ended and Coil ended, um, which was the festival hosted um, at PS122 slash now Performance Space. Um, and Performance Space now is doing tons of interesting programming, but almost no theater. Um, and so they have gone from being a real center of experimental theater work to not really being um, a space whose um, where theater is one of their primary interests. Um, and so, uh, so she suggested that I should really talk to somebody who, um, advocates for artists and tries to make these deals. And she suggested, um, Tommy Kriegs Kriegsman, excuse me, um, who's one of the producers of Archetype, um, Productions, which is, uh, a, an independent producing agency that works with artists like 600 Highwaymen and Nora Chipamare, um, and, uh, all kinds of other experimental dance and theater, um, companies and individual artists. Um, and so I had a really interesting conversation um, with Tommy, who was um, not at all nostalgic for what January used to be. Um, he articulated essentially that um, this was a terrible time to be an artist trying to share new work with presenters because um, presenters were just slammed all day long, um, that the attention span was not there, um, that the early January start meant you were like rehearsing right after New Year's, you were probably hungover. Um, it was really difficult. It was freezing out. Um, and the concentration of the amount of work meant that um, just that connection, that intentional connection between an institution that's going to present your work and the artist who's potentially going to be presented just couldn't happen. So um, he, first of all, recommended um, that the whole thing should be moved to April or May when it's a lot nicer out um, and extended so that people have a little bit more breathing space. Um, and really what this brought up for me is just the um, the way that artists bear the brunt of whatever unhealthy economic e ecosystem we have. Um, and the way that uh, he did say, yes, there was absolutely, there was, um, touring opportunities that were lost for artists this year who thought that they were going to be able to get them, um, but that in a bigger way, um, there's a kind of ecosystemic problem um, that was already there and that has now been exa exacerbated, excuse me. Um, I also um, uh, emailed with Mark Russell, who's the um, founding artistic director of Under the Radar, um, and he uh, he expressed some some similar thoughts that um, that there there has been a loss, but he also um, sort of pointed this out in a generational way that now that we have um, the loss of these couple of festivals and we have a couple of years of um, artists and audiences not being able to connect, um, that there was a kind of generation coalescing around um, 2005 to 2008 of artists, um, and uh, and that now we have, there's a little bit of a, a generation gap. And so it's interesting to think about, for me, to think about um, an artistic cycle being just a few years, that a few years of missing um, what's happening can mean this kind of gap in context um, that audiences or artists bring to one another's work. Um, and then um, one more person that I'll mention who I connected with was um, Teresa Buchheister, um, who is the artistic director of um, the Exponential Festival. Um, and Teresa um, had a diff slightly different take because they have been doing online work really throughout the pandemic. The Brick launched this um, online series out of an abundance of caution that um, aired for a while. Um, I believe on Twitch, like every Sunday night, there was something new. Um, and it was this massive grab bag of performance. Um, and so Teresa said basically um, a couple things. One was that because they had been doing so much online programming, that connection to audiences in an online space was already there. Um, and then also that this um, forced a kind of re-examination of 
why for each of the performances that had been curated into Exponential and that for those that decided to postpone rather than going online, the why was really about the necessity to be in a space with physically with audience members. And so there was, um, although it was heartbreaking, there was some um, some clarity there as well. Um, so I think there are a lot of pieces and some of them are artistic and some of them are economic and institutional. Um, but uh, I have been thinking thinking about this as, um, in a way, really kind of the end of this 15-year moment um, and uh, and something new will emerge. Um, but uh, as Tommy pointed out, it's always on the artists to make that happen um, and it shouldn't be. Um, so those are a few of the things I learned and happy to share share other things. It's fascinating. I'll, I'll, I just want to pick out a couple things that surprised me about this. It shouldn't surprise me, though, that the audiences are a crucial part of this. I, I, I think never having witnessed it, never having been there, I'm just thinking, oh, there's a sort of matchmaking, speed dating thing going on between presenters and artists. But of course, the presenters want to see what the audiences are flocking to, and they want to see the way audiences respond. Um, but it's also interesting that the the at least from what I can tell, the tenor of your conversations is not just, you know, gloom and depression and, oh, no, everything has been lost. It's not without that loss, but that really this is a situation that seems to primarily benefit the presenters who are coming in from the nation, from, you know, all outside New York and probably outside the United States. It benefits them logistically, but it sounds like it's actually been, it's tough for, for artists to have this sort of command performance in January every year. I'm also, you know, as you talk about audience, I'm also noticing that all my all my friends and colleagues who ritually go to New York every January um, aren't going right, and it's thrown off their their research cycle as well, right? That um, because many of many of the artists they follow aim to be be in New York at that time, if not actually be presenting work. Um, it it was it was interesting to read about the kinds of distributions that are happening of like people choosing to to present one or two things and not um and not in larger festivals and you know really um but it it is also heartbreaking to to you know I, like as a as a performer myself i've i've uh I, i've had invitations this in the last year that have been canceled have been turned into a lecture instead of a performance have been uh or i'm just being sort of uh the word is not strung along but just People have asked me to wait and see if if the situation opens up, right? So that that kind of wait, um, waiting on your tiptoes to know whether you're actually going to have a gig or not, um, is really disappointing, stressful, anxiety producing. Miriam, do you get the sense that artists and theaters are feeling pressure, like we need to actually have a sort of streaming? Uh, platform or a, a sort of way to get our work out there uh, or we're going to be forgotten about? Do, do you feel like theaters that did not try to launch an ambitious new, um, you know, remote way of sharing their work last year are now feeling like, oh no, we, we, we need to get, we need to get something that we can share in that, in that way? I don't really know um, because I think there's a difference between um, a large nonprofit theater institution um, some of which were the spaces that housed these festivals and the festival itself, which would be an entity that may be curated independently. So for instance, the artistic director of the public is not necessarily the artistic director of Under the Radar. 
the artistic director of American Realness was not the artistic director of Abrams Art Center, which was the primary space where it would be housed. Um, and so there are kind of institutional distinctions there. Um, it does, it seems anecdotally that many um, theater institutions have developed some form of online um, engagement or, um, or streaming. Um, and so I can't, I can't say with any kind of certainty um, what that is, but one thing that um, that did kind of strike me is that the artists that are making, I mean, for instance, Tommy mentioned 600 Highwaymen and they've been doing these phone call performances for like almost two, almost since the beginning of the pandemic, um, that they are um, continuing to um, potentially get booked because theaters know for sure, Kareem speaking to like what you were saying, theaters know for sure that they can host a, um, a performance that takes place um, through a a, a phone call, um, an international phone call system. Um, and they don't know for sure that they can host um, a, a live performance. Um, one of the things I was talking to um, a grad school friend, Sarah Bishop Stone, who's a, an independent um, pr uh, producer and manager based in Philadelphia. And she was saying um, that also that, that kind of market um, may just not be there in the same way because um, institutions are still catching up on stuff that was programmed in 2020. And so um, there's this there's this kind of time lapse. Um, and then on top of that, one of the things that a couple of people mentioned to me is that um, regional theaters um, that for a minute there were kind of bringing in kind of uh, experimental work that had been produced and created elsewhere um, have kind of shifted to a much more, in many cases, more local orientation um, and a more um, new play generating orientation. Um, and so there's there's a whole bunch of factors that are all adding up here. But I think, um, you know, one of the things that was really noticeable was how, um, how distinct my nostalgia as a scholar um, for this moment where um, I would spend all this time and the and just um, see everybody I knew in the lobby of the public and then go see five things and just um, feel absolutely fulfilled was um, totally at the expense of um, the artists and even to some extent the presenters and producers who are um, being exhausted by this moment that um, has uh, been set up like a marketplace um, and that the way that festivals timed themselves to APAP was really, really smart. Um, but at the same time, um, this also expanded what that sense of marketplace was. And so, um, you know, as, as always, we need to, um, when we think about art as something that we are buying and selling, um, or specifically performance is something that we're buying and selling um, in this marketplace, the artists always lose. Um, and so it just has to be reframed. And so if, if out of that heartbreak, something, something um, can emerge, that would be um, probably better than the January that we all remember, but I don't know. Um, one, you know, from the APAP conference, one of the uh, pieces of advice that came out of it is, um, it's on their website, but president and founder of LC Management, Laura Colby says, we're so wired, uh, wired to get the gig and never say no and make it work to what end. That's just soul crushing. So allow yourself a different space to work. And that includes saying no, look to what it can do for you. Look at the peace of mind you can provide it's yourself. But here's the thing, you really have to mean it. And this goes back to honoring your artistic practice and, um, Sometimes honoring your artistic practice means saying no to contracts that don't serve you. Um, and I think that 
as presenters ourselves, right, um, on college campuses, we can also keep that in mind. I, I guess I had a question for both of you: Is what is are are your departments or campuses presenting anything right now, or, um, and and how are you how are you paying artists or finding ways to to get money into artists' pockets and and to different companies? Um, yeah, I mean, I have been. Um, thinking about this as I uh, became the director of a theater program in the middle of um, 20, uh, 2020 to 2021 academic year, so about a year ago. Um, I am trying to focus on um, hiring fewer artists that I can pay really well, um, as opposed to asking a lot of people to come in and serve my um, academic program that I cannot pay um, at an adequate scale. Um, so uh, for instance, I'm doing as opposed to a full production with a full design team where um, I cannot pay something that's fair to those designers. Um, I'm bringing in just two artists to spend time with my students, and then I'm able to compensate those artists at a rate that feels um, actually at least to some extent adequate to what they're doing. Um, and I'm also, um, you know, we talked in a fall, I think, uh, episode of the podcast about the no more 10 out of 12 um, movement. I'm thinking about that very much in terms of the workload for my students, my faculty and visiting artists and um, trying to build rehearsal schedules that do not look like the ones that um, maybe we experienced in school or that um, that might be expected in the professional world. It's interesting, you know, Kareem, what you read from the APAP website, um, it, it very much converges with a sort of broader sentiment I've been hearing reports about, about people's attitudes towards their jobs and, and people being unwilling to put up with the kind of stress that they undertook just to uh, keep their keep their employment going. Um, and that seems to be one of the broader effects of the pandemic. Um, I don't have a lot to report in terms of what we're doing in terms of presenting. We have a presenting theater that Edison, um, that used to have, uh, you know, bring in many more acts um, uh, nationally and internationally, and lately has been serving more local institutions. One of those institutions that we have, a the department has a partnership with the, the Black Rep, um, has most of its season in the Edison, and they postponed their January show until May. Um, I, we need to move on to our, our our last topic, but I will say that one of the things that um, I think has been interesting about this phenomenon is a sense that you get the sense that in professional the professional theater world and probably academic as well, there's a sort of hope that the Omicron wave is just going to crest and we're going to move forward. I have a friend who is a playwright. He has a play opening at the, at the Geffen in February. Their opening date got pushed a week, and I know he's been, you know, just hoping against hope that the show doesn't get canceled uh, if the wave doesn't subside. So then, in reading Helen Shaw's article about um, Taylor Max the Hang, realized like that they had the same attitude, but they're opening in January, and they opened, in fact, you know. So there, I, I do think there's a sense. I mean, I don't know how broad this is. That's quite anecdotal, but a sense that um, the this massive Omicron wave is happening, but people are not as ready perhaps to just cancel shows as they had been last year. And there's a, you know, in some quarters, at least a sense of, of, well, this show is going to go on. So it's an interesting um, set of impulses and imperatives um, in the theater business these days. Um, 
very much tied to this conversation, um, uh, we picked up and, and saw a, a smattering of some of the shows that, that Helen Shaw mentioned in her um, Vulture piece. Um, uh, I wondered if we could hear from from all of us about what we saw. Kareem, I saw you in the Zoom room for uh, Addressless. This is a show that um, uh, Rattlestick Theater put together, directed by Martin Boros, uh, written by Jonathan Payne. I guess it's adapted from a Hungarian show uh, about um, the experience of, of living without stable housing. Um, and it was, you know, I, I won't get in, into a sort of in-depth uh, review or critique, but it was Zoom-based, highly interactive, had the form of kind of a choose-your-own-adventure um, where the audience was was uh, broken into groups assigned to one of three protagonists, each of whom was um, uh, without stable housing. And then you help them navigate these impossible dilemmas where they try to, you know, trade off their their, um, you know, bodily health for the ability to earn money um, uh, and face all sorts of just circumstances that show how impossible it is for many people struggling to live without housing. Um, so it was, I don't know, it was, it was an example of a sort of interactive theater model that um, I, I, I have seen in other, in other places. Um, and, you know, I don't know, it was, it was valuable in that it really, you know, I, I made clear, I think, what the, the, the situation is that a lot of um, people, homeless people are, are, are facing and continue to face. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, Kareem, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about yeah. it. What did you, what did you think of the show? How did you feel about it? I mean, I, uh, I feel like a jerk, like <laughs> given that the, the sort of the, the show's, uh, a critical political offering, I was so cranky that I had to watch something in real time. <laughs> I like, I bought the ticket and it was like show starting at 8 PM. And I'm like, I have to be home. Like I have to be home by a particular time to watch the thing, uh, because I yeah. like the the most recent thing I saw before that was Christina Wong's sweatshirt sh- sweatshop overlord from New York Theater Workshop that had a streaming option in a, in addition to a live option. You know, I watched that at midnight when I sat down to watch it. Right, so I just I was like, okay, I. Uh, make the time, sit down, watch uh, in real time. And then it said, turn on your camera, turn on your mic, get into breakout rooms. And I was like, what is happening? I'm not, I just, <laughs> I think I've like, I, and, and, and it all worked really well for the show. It would, it like, it, sure. it, it was right for the show. I think I've just gotten used to this kind of streaming option of th- theater is always available. I can watch it in the night, in the morning, um, at my convenience. And, and I think, that's that definitely something I've gotten used to is the the loss of real time uh, uh yeah the loss of real time events and participation um or yeah. even required participation like having to turn on my video and oh, sure. mute oh yeah the actors are coming out into the audience yeah, look, out, look, yeah. A, look awake <laughs> and you know I would be okay I, I think I, I you know if if I was at a live live in person show I would that would be fine yeah. um but but the idea of like, I think it's the idea of like turning home theater watching into ritual practice as opposed to like cooking while watching or, you know, I, I it, 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 that having that forced upon me was new, I, I would say. Um, well, and if you're someone who's being compelled to spend a lot of time on Zoom interacting with people as part of your job, I could understand that not being super appealing. And I'll I'll say just this about the modality of it, which is that I do think it was very much appropriate to the subject matter and to the play. It's a kind of Boalian exercise and spectator actor agency. Um, You're really talking your protagonist. You're talking to the actor playing the role in the role, and you're trying to making the decisions together and and living with the circumstances. That's cool. Um, Unlike 
you know, some of the Fake Friends productions that uh, have really made a mark in the last year, there's no way to experience it after the fact. With fake with a Fake Friends show, you can be part of it live and be part of the social media experience, and that's really exciting. And then you can also buy a ticket to the stream afterward, and it's still really cool if that's how you'd prefer to watch it. But this this particular production, you're either in the room and you got to be responsive and you're people are looking to you and calling your name occasionally or you should skip it and watch something else. But it was it was very smooth. The transitions between pre-recorded, live, uh, breakout room, like that that the the rehearsal of that they had done of the Zoom platform was really impressive. Um, and I've never seen a cl- I've never run a classroom that smoothly. So I was I was like <laughs> taking notes, learning. Yeah. Absolutely. Mir- Miriam, what what uh, have you seen recently in, in the sort of brave new world of, of streaming theater? So I saw uh, Molly Lieber and Eleanor Smith's um, Gloria rehearsal excerpt, which was a, um, a streaming premiere produced by the Bershnikov Arts Center in New York City. And they are a duo of um, experimental dance artists who have been working together for a very long time. And um, they, I, I partially chose that because their work is, um, in a certain way, a staple of um, the January festivals. They have often been presented um, at New York Live Arts as part of American Realness. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to see what they were up to now. And they have talked about Gloria um, rehearsal as a um, as a kind of abstract feminist piece, um, thinking about the gendered body um, and about the interaction of bodies in space. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, some of the things that I enjoyed about it were... Um, you know, ideas that won't seem new, um, but that I appreciated in this moment. Um, they took up a lot of space um, physically and also um, just in time. The piece was 90 minutes, which, um, again, just thinking about how we experience performance now, 90 minutes used to be um, kind of a short performance or kind of like, uh, like I was happy if something was about 90, 75 to 90 minutes was like the sweet spot. Now watching something at home, even though I had, um, it was, it, it was, um, streaming over a number of days. So once I had the ticket, I could see it at any point between next day and X other day. Um, it was a long time. It felt like a long time to watch, um, a performance. Um, and I, by the end, I really appreciated how much performance they had asked me to watch um, and how they could have excerpted it. They called it an excerpt. Um, Maybe it was, um, but it was a really long excerpt. Um, And they, and then also just the kind of tactical richness that they brought to something that was, you know, produced in a very spare um, kind of workshoppy way. So the the video starts with the two of them outside of um, the Bershnikov Art Center. They're talking to the camera and introducing themselves. You walk inside with them. You go into this big studio. Um, you spend time with them in that space. And the piece is um, very abstract. There are moments when um, there are kind of clear statements of what their ideas are about. There's a monologue about... Um, where they just tell each other, like, you're too much. You're just too much. You're, you're just too much. You're, it's just too much. You're just too much. I just, and, and there's too much of saying too much. And, um, you both recognize it and also appreciate it. At least that was my feeling about it. Um, and then there are sections that are totally abstract. Um, there are long sections where they're just both of them nude and with their bodies on top of one another. And the interpretation is completely left open to the audience. Um, and again, I think that situating this in this moment, um, where that is 
not the kind of performance that we often have access to over Zoom or in a live stream or um, or even in you know in in physical time and space. I was really grateful to spend that time with them, um, and I'll be curious to see how the piece develops. Can I ask what platform it was on that allowed nudity? Because I think that's I mean that's something a lot of people are running into is like copyright for music, mm. um, nudity. Uh, things That's like so that. interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to say it was um, through Vimeo, but could I be wrong? Yes. Um, you you went to a you went to the link through an email that the BAC sent you with a password. Um, so it was password protected, and maybe that has something to do with it. Um, but I will have to check. And um, if listeners are curious what platform it was on, I can I can let you know. But it was if not Vimeo, it was a Vimeo like uh, platform. <laughs> Yeah, I was bummed out to miss that, and I was curious also about the term excerpt. Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I went to log on or get my ticket, it had just closed. It had like you could no longer see it after five p.m. Monday or, or whatever it was. Um, but I wonder if the excerpt refers to something about the form of it, like it's improvisatory, or maybe maybe the different as originally conceived, the different performances would have a a more open ended structure, and so you just got to see one. 90 minute piece of it. I'll say that that was true of Addressless as well, which which clocked in over two hours. And for Zoom, that's 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 a chunk. That's a chunk of your of your experience. Yeah. No, I'm just I'm I'm I am curious about whether um audiences experience of um what a long play is or what a long live performances is going to change um, because we have different kind of mental presets for what we expect from a TV episode, a movie, a a play, um, a one act, um, or an experimental performance. And I wonder if after having seen so much of our performance through a screen of some kind, our expectations of just what feels long and what feels short are going to change. And one of my favorite things um, that can happen in live performance is when an artist makes early short time feel very long or very long time feel very short. And that's one of the things that performance can do. Um, So, I mean, I think the last time that I uh, saw January performance, I saw um, Miguel Gutierrez's piece, This Bridge Called My Ass. And it was, um, I think it was under 90 minutes and it felt like four hours in, in, in the best, most excruciating best way. Um, and so I, I was so, I was like, my mind was blown by, by that fact. And, um, so I'm curious what, what that will do to our brains as audience members. I have to say, I wonder if this isn't like the kind of mindset shift about working conditions, something where the pandemic is actually bringing to the surface, something that existed before. And I only say this because in in 2019, I felt like almost every play I saw was too long. And that, you know, not to single out anybody, but that if people were producing a Shakespeare and they wanted it to go over three hours, I was like, what are you doing? This is insane, you know? But I, I think you're right, obviously, Miriam, that different pieces ought to be different lengths and there should not, it would be absurd to say, oh, theater should just be shorter, but that indeed, like to, to expect people to hang in there for something for longer than two hours, um, Maybe that's something that we already felt in some way, but now um, is getting more pressure. I feel that way about most movies too. Most movies are half an hour too long. Um, well, thank you uh, both for your for your um, uh, your dispatches, your 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 points of view about these streaming offerings. We're gonna 
conclude with our drafts. This is the segment where each of us um, offers up something, I don't know, rattling around in our brains, something on our radar, so to speak. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, Miriam, would you like to share your draft first? Sure. So my draft is really um, very much an extension of um, of topic number two, um, because I had so many thoughts um, just just in communication with you know a couple of producers and um, writers and um, and artistic directors. Their memory of the past fifteen years was so much more detailed and fine grained than anything that I could recall, even as someone who um, pretty regularly engaged with that scene. That I um, I felt like someone. <laughs> maybe it's me, should write down this history of 2005 to 2019 in, in New York City. And um, so my draft is, um, someday I'm going to do that. And then um, my other draft is, uh, on the flip side, um, I am pitching that everybody should get a year off paid with benefits. I mean, everybody in every job before we have to do anything else. And I think that that just goes to that here we are starting another semester. And um, as much as I'm super excited um, for my classes and I'm excited to see my students and my colleagues, um, it, it does strike me that every semester into the pandemic, we are not getting less tired. And I, I am sure that is true for everybody in every kind of job. And so um, so I'd like to see um, long-term sabbaticals for all. That's my draft. <laughs> I, that's something I could get behind as well. Uh, Kareem. Um, so I, I recently saw the, the new Scream movie. And I, um, I also watched on Netflix this new show called Archive 81. Um, and I just, I, it's in the pandemic that I've been watching more horror. And I started with, and, and thrillers, I started with Train to Busan and then The Ring. And I just, um, I'm realizing that I like, that, that watching these films is the only time that I feel things. <laughs> like, or just that like life has, life is like my, you know, I never, I, there's nothing that gives me an adrenaline rush anymore. And, and it used to be going out and travel and any of those things. And there's not, there's no like high excitement um, when, when most of your life is sitting on Zoom. Um, and so horror has been in a strange way, a really a saving grace to remind me that I have other kinds of feelings possible in my body. Um, and that's um, not that I'm going to write anything more about it, but you know, I, I think that um, feelings are important and having different kinds of emotions um, is a reminder of the, the, the stretch and scope of who we are. Um, and I like feeling scared. Um, scared, scared not for, not about the pandemic, but different, different, there are different kinds of scared um, and they're just different kinds of terror that, that actually feel good in the body. Um, and I, I enjoy those. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hate to deviate from the sort of theme between your two drafts, which I respond to very profoundly, which is just a sense of how long this winter is. I don't think we expected it, or, or maybe we were in a self-protective way um, telling ourselves that things were going to be a lot more normal this year, even though this winter has ended up being pretty bad. Um, I'll, I'll, I had a different draft, but I'm going to, on the fly, switch it for this one, which is that... Um, and I realize that this will sound, you know, there, there are a lot of people in our field, a lot of people listening who don't get regular sabbaticals, but 
I just concluded three and a half years of serving as chair. And there was a moment a couple of weeks ago where I realized that I had convinced myself that I was eligible for an additional semester of sabbatical that I was not. And I will go into the, de- I won't go into the details, but basically somewhere along the lines of 2021, I had tricked myself into thinking that as soon as I was done with this academic year, I was going to be owed or I would, would have earned the next semester of sabbatical. And indeed, I have three more semesters that I have to teach mm. <laughs> in order to get that semester. And it's fine. I'm not teaching this semester. I'm going to get the break. I'm going to be able to do the, you know, recovering and reading and researching that I need to do. But it was very clear in retrospect, like, oh, my brain had, I had just convinced myself that a break was coming that was not in fact coming perhaps to just get through some of what happened last year. Um, so I'll, I don't know, I'll, I'll share that bit of sort of personal professional disillusionment um, in case it provides the occasion for some sense of solidarity. Um, Miriam, Kareem, thank you guys so much. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you listeners. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for streaming. Um, we are available um, on platforms other than Spotify in case you're looking to leave Spotify. Um, but uh, we uh, we appreciate your, your checking in with the podcast and we'll have another one for you in just a few weeks. ONTAP is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 